0: Imagine leaving your five-year-old son to stay overnight with his grandparents. Grandparents that he absolutely adores. You kiss him goodbye and wave to your parents and say, thank you, I'll see you tomorrow, while you usher your other kids to the car for the drive home. You go through your evening routine, hoping to get eight hours of sleep, kiss your other two kids goodnight, and fall asleep. The next morning, the sun rises and you head to your parents to pick up your son, hoping he hasn't had too much sugar and spoiling. You arrive ready to hear all the stories your son is about to share. When you notice that the front door is open, but no one's there to greet you, you walk in and instead of being met with hugs and chatter, the smell of metallic blood attacks your senses, a scene of carnage overwhelming your vision, and the dooming sense of your most worst nightmares start to pound a steady beat. In your heart. This is similar to what happened on the morning of June 30th, 2014, to Jennifer O'Brien. And today I'll be sharing her story, remembering her beautiful son Nathan and her parents, Alvin and Kathy Lickness. I'm Stephanie Moram, and this is Wicked Ever After. Since this also goes on YouTube, there's a lot of words I cannot say, such as sexual assault sexual abuse, rape. So in those moments you might hear me on the podcast say SA. So I just wanted to give a heads up that as you're listening um, you might hear something a little bit different and that's only because I want to be able to post this on YouTube. Just going to give a trigger warning we are talking about kids and murder so if this is something you cannot listen to I suggest moving on to a different video. Please consider clicking the thumbs up button on this episode to get the story out. Also, please subscribe to my YouTube channel or podcast. It really does help the algorithm when you subscribe, like, and share my episodes. I really do appreciate it. And lastly, I still have my Invisalign. So if I mispronounce a word, I am apologizing in advance because there's times when I am struggling with the pronunciation. Our story begins with Alvin and Kathy Lickness, stepdad and mother of Jennifer O'Brien and grandparents, two or three children, including five-year-old Nathan. Alvin was born on June 22, 1949 in Coronation, Alberta. His family described him as an original thinker who loved to listen to whoever had his attention. He was an inventor and believed in efficiency and thinking things through. As an entrepreneur, he was often known to try new things and start new businesses on a whim. On his time off, he loved skiing, from cross-country skiing to water skiing. He enjoyed to drive his boogie van in Palace, Porsche, and took lessons on how to fly a plane. Sports was another passion, often seen playing hockey or coaching soccer. Despite his adventurous spirit, he also enjoyed the little things, like staying on top of the chores in the house. His family often talked about his hugs and how whenever you received a hug from Alvin, you could literally feel his love and pride radiating off of him. Catherine Lickness was born in Calgary, Alberta on April 5th, 1961. She was described as someone who was always there and had the answers to everything. Whether you needed an opinion, childcare, a dog sitter, directions, a hug, a ride, a kind word, or even a nail file, Catherine was your woman. Throughout her life, She earned certificates in web design, graphic design, and online publishing, and had her real estate license. She too had an entrepreneurial spirit and enjoyed taking chances on new things. Those who loved her said she had her heart pinned firmly to her sleeve and accepted people without prejudice or judgment, and always ensured her children and grandchildren knew exactly how much she loved them. Kathy and Elvin had a heartwarming love story, often seen dancing and laughing together. Alvin used to comment on his wife's beauty, both inside and out, and loved their daily walks together. Jennifer described her mom as her best friend and how they talked every single day, and how she was such a big help in raising her kids. Alvin had been with her mom since she was 16 and said they were a very, very happy normal family. In 2014, Alvin and Catherine were ready to retire and move on to the next phase of their lives. This next phase involved a move to Edmonton and a new house. Alvin was an avid golfer and had a place in Mexico and wanted to split their time between Mexico and Alberta, spending six months in Canada and the other six months soaking up the sun in Mexico. On the weekend of June 29th, 2014, Kathy and Alvin held an estate sale to prepare for their move. Jennifer and two of the three kids went to help her parents with the sale and to give her boys some extra quality time with their grandparents. Jennifer later talked about the lovely day they all had together during the sale and enjoyed some time at the park with the boys. As the day came to a close, Nathan wasn't ready for the fun to end and asked to spend the night with Kathy and Alvin. Unable to crush his hopes, Jennifer agreed and said they would all spend the night to make things easier. Jennifer later said that Nathan's relationship with Kathy was real special. She said that Kathy was one of his favorite people, always running to her whenever she came over and wanted to spend all his time with her. As for Nathan, she described him as a kind, loving, happy boy, friendly and smart. He always was a boy who loved superheroes. She said they didn't have to buy many real clothes because all he would ever wear was superhero costumes. So after deciding they would stay the night, everyone got ready for bed, And fell asleep however max jennifer's youngest son who was just one at the time had some difficulty falling asleep that night so jennifer decided it was best to pack up max and head home in hopes that they would get better sleep she decided to leave nathan at his parents because he was asleep and he was just so excited about the sleepover the next morning on monday june 30th jennifer called her parents to plan when she would pick up nathan But there was no answer, which was super unusual. So Jennifer decided to just head to her parents and she arrived around 10 a.m. As Jennifer approached the house with Max on her hip, she saw that the front door was completely open, but that no one was standing there greeting her, which was very unusual. She opened the door to call out for her parents and was immediately greeted with a horrific scene. There were pools of blood everywhere. Blood on the walls and bloody handprints on the floors and walls. Blood covered the bed, the walls, the kitchen. It was everywhere. Bedding was missing and the house was in disarray. Jennifer immediately thought something real bad happened here. She called her husband and told him, quote, my family's been murdered and he's taken the bodies, end quote. She then hung up and called 911. They told Jennifer they were on their way and to lock herself in her car in case she was in danger herself. Calgary police responded quickly and immediately started canvassing the house and the immediate area. Knowing a small child had been staying at the house, they searched the house from top to bottom just in case he was afraid somewhere in the house, but sadly he was nowhere to be found. What was found was the making of a gut Wrenching evidence that something horrible had happened in the house a few hours earlier. Besides the pools of blood and splatters of blood all over the house, one officer noted that on a wall near the door, there was a smeared bloodstain of a small handprint, as if somebody was being carried out and desperate to get away. Police could tell right away that the residents did not leave of their own volition, and an amber alert was immediately issued, and a massive search for the three began. DNA was collected from the Lickness and O'Brien homes, and police set out to interview the 200 or so people who had come to the estate sale. While the forensic team searched the house, they found a tooth that may have belonged to Alvin, and DNA analysis concluded that blood found all around the home, including on a set of 45-pound dumbbells in the garage, did match Kathy, Alvin, and Nathan. Investigators spoke to neighbors and they reported they didn't see anything unusual, but saw Nathan out playing in the backyard on Sunday afternoon with Alvin watching nearby. Everyone seemed happy and content. There was nothing suspicious noticed. As more evidence was analyzed and more of the crime scene picked through, police were hopeful they would find Nathan despite blood that matched his DNA. By the end of the first day of the investigation, investigators had compiled a list of six people of interest. They included a local sex offender, a man who had shot Alvin's daughter years before, a former house guest of the Lickness, and two disgruntled former employees of Alvin and Douglas Garland. Investigators interviewed each person, and one by one, they were all eliminated as possible suspects, except for Douglas Garland. Please remember that name because we're going to circle back and talk about him again. In a news conference a few days later on July 2nd, Nathan's parents, Rod and Jennifer, spoke to their son, begging to see their son again. Quote, Nathan, your mom and dad, Luke and Max, your whole family loves you. Nathan, you're a superhero right now and we're going to bring you home very soon. End quote. He added that Nathan was the, quote, glue in our family, end quote, that as he got older, he got more kind. Quote, Nathan, I need you to hear my voice right now, and I need you to know mommy and daddy hear you right now. I know grandma's holding you so tightly right now, and they're doing everything in their power to keep you safe. End quote, said Jennifer. Jennifer later admitted that she had a feeling from the moment she entered the house, and even during that press conference, that Nathan was already gone. But she wanted to hold out hope, even though a part of her already knew. I can't imagine how painful that must have been as a mom. It must be extremely hard when you have a child missing. It just, it's gut-wrenching. Police hadn't been giving very many details to the public. All the public knew was that three people were missing. They were blind to the violence that had actually occurred in the house. That is until July 4th, when police confirmed that a violent incident had occurred inside the residence. Investigators also released a photo of a green Ford F-150 that they'd seen several times on a neighbor's camera driving on the Lickness Street during the night hours when the three disappeared. Investigators said they were narrowing their search between 10 p.m. and 10 a.m. on the night of the crime. Some of the video footage was viewed over 100 times when it became evident that focus needed to be put on the green truck. In the footage, they followed the green truck from McLeod Trail around 3 a.m. to the Lickness home, where it eventually stopped. One investigator said he could also see a figure moving westbound on the sidewalk near the home. He also reported that a figure was seen on the CCTV walking back to the green truck, then one minute later back towards the Lickness home at 3.20 a.m. Two hours later, the same figure was seen walking to the green truck and leaving the area. As they continued to track the truck on the cameras, they noted that there was something large and white in the back of the box. Armed with all this footage, they asked for the public's help identifying the green truck's owner. It wasn't long before they had a huge tip. Patty Garland, sister to Douglas Garland, and also the common-law spouse to Alvin's son, Allen. So Douglas is a guy that I told you to remember at the very beginning. Immediately, Patty recognized the truck as the same one her brother Douglas drove. When Patty found out that her in-laws and nephew had gone missing, she immediately came to town. And that's when she recognized the truck as the same one her brother drove. She had her son take a photo of the truck, who then gave it to Alan, and then Alan forwarded it to the Calgary police. Around this time, on July 7th, Douglas appeared in court on charges related to identity theft. Still, he was released despite remaining a person of interest in the missing family's case. After getting the tip about the green truck, police confirmed on July 9th that the green truck was seized from the Garland's property. At the same time, he appeared in court again for another unrelated charge for possession of a stolen credit card. While in jail, police went to his residence that he shared with his elderly parents on a hostage rescue mission, convinced that Douglas had a part in the disappearance of Kathy, Alvin, and Nathan. However, no bodies alive or dead were found. But they did notice a burn barrel still smoldering behind the house, filled with ash, which was super suspicious. There was no blood or other bodily remains around the barrel. It was just smoking ash. After serving a couple of days in jail, Douglas was released on $750 bail, but was told not to return to the residence he shared with his parents. When Douglas was off the property, police continued their extensive and exhaustive search of the property. Inside the house, in the basement rafters, police found a computer drive that contained Bone-chilling details. Trigger warning for everyone that's listening. Forensic examiners sifted through the 112 gigabytes of information and found several documents about killing. Some even had kill or murder in the title. These included a book called How to Kill Without Joy, the complete How to Kill book, and the Death Dealer's Manual, which is an autopsy manual. There was a locksmiths folder that contained quite a few documents and pictures pertaining to locksmithing and lock picking, security system alarms, handcuffs, and tasers. Many of these documents had to do with the exact lock the Lickness had on their side entrance, the same lock that was found tampered with after they disappeared. The hard drive also showed that Douglas had a somewhat interesting sexual fetish as multiple images of men and women were found in adult diapers. Many of them showed the subject restrained and naked, except in a diaper. That's really odd. But perhaps the most damning evidence came in the photos they found of Kathy Lickness. His Google history search also contained details about the couple's estate sale and some of their personal information and searches regarding amputations and autopsies. Some of the Google searches they found were most painful torture, human dissection, bone grinder, and blood removal solution. What in the actual fuck? That's, yes, that's all I got. While the hard drive was being looked at, other investigators were shoulder to shoulder going over every inch of the property, hoping they would find clues and any insight to what happened to the missing people. In the house, They found that Douglas owned a ton of clothing, both men and women's, two female blonde wigs, and 89 pairs of shoes that were also both men and women's shoes, all in Douglas's size. In the closet, they found an empty shoebox, which was a size 13 Dr. Scholl's tennis shoe, which was nowhere to be found. And they also found adult diapers that were stolen from a hospital. Out in the garage, police seized box after box of weapons, including guns, knives, and also handcuffs in both adult and child sizes. Hacksaw blades were also found along with leather straps, bowen saws, and a straight jacket. They also discovered TVEC full-body suits, the kind worn by forensic investigators at crime scenes, as well as rubber gloves, chemical gloves, and a rain suit. A half-empty bottle of chloroform and a bottle of insulin were also found, as well as RNAs, a chemical that can cause DNA breakdown, a blood clotting powder, and two empty 50-liter canisters of liquid nitrogen. That is a lot of shit that an everyday person probably should not have. But while the police were on their hands and knees combing every inch of the property, they were frustrated that no bodies were ever recovered. This caused investigators to turn their attention back to the burn barrel they initially found on the first day. They went through the ash and found bits of bone, a tooth, and a pair of glasses. Shortly after, police said that while the victims' bodies had not been found, evidence convinced them that the investigation had turned from a missing persons case to a homicide investigation. On July 14th, Douglas was arrested again, this time in relation to the disappearance of Kathy, Alvin, and Nathan. As he was led into the processing unit by the police, reporters asked him where the victim's bodies might be, but he just remained silent. Calgary Police Chief Rick Hansen told reporters, quote, ultimately, we want to be able to find the bodies so the family can have final closure, end quote which could only mean the police would not rest until they knew what happened to the missing three. The next day, on July 15th, Douglas was officially charged with two counts of first-degree murder in the death of Kathy and Alvin and one count of second-degree murder in the death of Nathan. Police said in general terms, a first-degree murder charge suggests that it was premeditated intent, while a second-degree charge does not. As police poured over the items taken from the property and continued to analyze DNA evidence, they found a charred circuit board to a set of car keys matching the Lickness Toyota truck and lock picking tools, locks, padlocks, and blank keys. This guy's got a lot of shit in his house that he should not have. Along with the knives and saws, two meat hooks were found, and after being analyzed, Kathy Lickness' DNA was found on one of the meat hooks. So gross. Alvin and Nathan's DNA were both found on the hacksaw. Rubber boots with the victim's DNA on the outside and inside were also analyzed and found. It took police 550 hours and 10 months to sift through 120 gallons of ash pulled from the property. Eventually, they found some 17 teeth fragments, bits of bone, a button jewelry, and a piece of a shackle. Charred flesh was also found around the burn barrel thanks to the help of a cadaver-sniffing police dog named Scully. So clearly, something horrible happened on this property. It's evident. But the police really had to put the pieces together. So the questions remained. Why Douglas committed this crime? What did he do with the missing three? But most of all, who is Douglas Garland and how did he become such a monster? Douglas was the oldest of three children born to Archie and Doreen Garland and grew up on a small farm north of Calgary, the same farm where he eventually committed the murders. He attended Camrose Lutheran Church, earning a Bachelor of Science before he switched to the University of Alberta. There he attended his first year of medical school, but after a few months, seemed to experience some sort of breakdown. We don't really know anything about the breakdown. And he ended up leaving the university. Douglas was described as having ADD and still dealt with a lot of trauma from a horrific car crash caused when he fell asleep at the wheel years ago. Douglas' mother described him as having no friends and spoke about how she thought he seemed troubled. Quote, I think he's an unhappy man, end quote. Federal court records showed that Douglas Garland had a criminal record in British Columbia. In a 2005 judgment, Douglas was charged for producing his own amphetamines in 1992. He left Alberta for Vancouver and assumed the name of a dead person, Matthew Kemper Hartley, a 14-year-old Alberta boy who died in a 1980 car crash. Douglas applied for a social insurance number and driver's license with the alias and, quote, conducted all his activities in Vancouver under the same name, Matthew Hartley, end quote. He also lied about having a science degree in order to get a job at a laboratory testing pesticides, herbicides, and organic compounds. Apparently, he had the right skills because he was promoted to supervisor. However, after four years at this job, he suffered another breakdown, which we know nothing about, and was fired in 1997. A couple of years later, in 1990, Douglas worked at the BC Institute of Technology, and that's where police caught up with him. Finally, he pleaded guilty to drug offenses and two counts of trafficking and sentenced to 39 months in a federal prison in 2000. He received an additional month for possession of stolen property. But after six months, the Parole Board of Canada granted him accelerated release, cutting his sentence short. What a mistake that was. The Parole Board noted that many previous weapons and assault charges were dismissed or drawn. Psychologists determined at the time that Douglas had, quote, little violence potentials to others, end quote. Parole documents show that the board verbalized, quote, while the weapons and assault charges are indicative that you may commit a violent offense, given that you're 40 years of age and have never incurred a conviction for violence, and in the absence of documented indicators for violence, there's no reasonable grounds to believe your release is likely to result in a violent crime, end quote. A second review a few months later suggested that Douglas's mental health had stabilized. Your mental health is assessed as having stabilized and with close monitoring in the community residential facility and by mental health professionals, you are assessed as having low risk. However, the board did order a psychologist and psychiatrist to monitor him upon release. That's all we know about Douglas's personal life, but what did this have to do with Alvin, Kathy, or Nathan? Was this just a random act of violence or something more connected? As the puzzle pieces came together for the police, more was being revealed about what might have been the motive for Douglas. Before Alvin retired, he was in the oil and gas business and at one point was in the middle of inventing an experimental pump for the industry at large. Looking for help, Alvin's son, Allen suggested that Douglas would be a good fit for the job, so Alvin hired him to do some work for him. It seemed that Alvin and Douglas were getting along great for a while, but over time, Douglas became difficult to work with, and Alvin was forced to let him go. Allen testified in court that his father paid Douglas for all his work, and it was fair. After letting Douglas go, Alvin continued the work on the pump, and eventually filed a patent under his name. This apparently pissed Douglas off. He claimed that he had significantly contributed to the creation of this pump and felt cheated because his contribution had not been acknowledged. Douglas' father, Archie, told the court that Douglas was never paid for his work, but he did tell his son that he couldn't win them all and to let the grudge go. But apparently, Douglas wasn't listening to his dad, and he was not letting this go. He held a petty grudge that seemed to fester over time. In another strange finding, apparently in December of 2013, about six months before the murder, Douglas was convinced that Alvin had come to the farm and stolen from him. Which is odd. Like, why would Alvin steal from him? There was no evidence or further information on why Douglas actually thought this. The hostility towards Alvin seemed to build so much that Douglas set out to plan the killings of Alvin and his wife, Kathy. You had to be pretty pissed off to start planning out killing someone. So messed up. Despite no bodies being found, the trial began in January 2017 for the murders of Alvin, Kathy and Nathan. But during the pre-trial hearing, the second degree murder charge of Nathan was upgraded to first degree. 1,400 pieces of evidence was gathered, but only 89 pieces were presented at trial. One of the 89 pieces of evidence was photos of the Garland property from an aerial photographer in July of 2014. Paul Gagnon was an aerial photographer who was assigned to take aerial footage of that area for mapping purposes on July 1st and 2nd, 2014. To do this, pilots follow a grid pattern to ensure complete coverage, The equipment used took an image every three seconds and also captured GPS data at the exact same time. During the investigation, Paul happened to pull out his photos and by what prosecutors called dumb luck, discovered something suspicious on the property. He found the outline of three bodies out on the grass. The images that were suspected to actually be bodies were measured. One body was measured 1.2 nine meters long, the other 1.7 meters, and the last one 0.7 meters. Another image showed what appeared to be a shadow of a person standing near the barrel, the burn barrel we were talking about, and that was near the greenhouse. This was even more damning to the defense. And seriously, what are the odds that a guy flies over the property as you're committing a crime? Like, what are the odds? I'm so glad that he happened to be flying over on July 1st and 2nd. Throughout the five-week trial, police laid out their scenario of what they thought happened that night. They believe on the morning of June 30th, Douglas used his pick-locking skills to enter the home side door and found Alvin alone in the couple's bed. Before moving to the guest bedroom where Kathy slept with Nathan, he bludgeoned Alvin. Police concluded that Douglas hadn't planned on Nathan being at the house but he had to improvise when he discovered the boy. There was no option to leave Nathan alive as he could identify Douglas. Douglas proceeded to attack Kathy and Nathan. Based on forensic evidence found at the home, police said all three were still alive when Douglas took them from the home and put them in his truck. Wow. Wow. This was where they said the small handprint on the wall was likely Nathan fighting to free himself from the grasp of Douglas as he carried him out of the house. That poor baby. Douglas then drove them to his farm property where he later appeared to have tortured them before killing them. After murdering all three, he disposed of their bodies in the burn barrel and burnt them until they turned to ash. As the police laid out their timeline, Douglas showed zero remorse or regret appearing to have no emotion when the gruesome details and photos were told to the jurors. On February 16th, 2017, the trial ended and jurors deliberated for nine hours before reaching a verdict. They found Douglas guilty on all counts, and Douglas was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences with no chance of parole for at least 75 years. Thank fucking God. Like, this guy needs, is just going to die. In jail. Like he just needs to stay there. In 2021, Douglas tried to appeal his 75-year parole ineligibility, but was unsuccessful. Also, thank goodness. In 2015, the Nathan O'Brien Foundation was created. Their mission statement says, quote, the Nathan O'Brien Children's Foundation was established to provide a helping hand to disadvantaged children. Our privately funded foundation supports children's charities through grants honoring our son Nathan. O'Brien. As parents, it's important that Nathan's spirit lives on and continues to inspire good deeds in the world. The Nathan O'Brien Children's Foundation is honored to work with other dedicated charities to be part of a community that wants to make a positive difference in the world. Together, we honor Nathan while benefiting Calgary's children charities, end quote. In an interview with Nathan's parents, they fondly remember their superhero loving boy, Nathan shined brightest when playing with his brothers and friends. He enthusiastically enjoyed playing hockey, soccer, and skiing with his family, as he did dressing up in his superhero costumes. Nathan will be loved and missed every day by his family and friends end quote Yes, Kathy, Alvin, and Nathan are missed every single day in the comments. Let me know your thoughts and opinions on the case. Also, you can email me at steph at. StephanieMoram.co, where you can share your case suggestions, or if you just want to chat, you can email me there. Please hit the subscribe button on YouTube or whatever podcasting platform you're listening on. It really does help the algorithm when you like, subscribe, and share. You can stay connected with me on Instagram and TikTok at This is Stephanie Moram. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Until next time, stay safe out there.